The first day of the week is when Jesus rose from the dead. It's a little Easter. And so in the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter after Luke announces and explains that Jesus has risen from the dead, we have one of the amazing parts of all of the Bible. It's one of my favorite chapters where Jesus has this incredible personal intimate conversation with two unnamed disciples. And they're walking along and they are a little bit disheartened and confused and wondering about the events that have just happened in Jerusalem, that Jesus has actually been crucified on a Roman cross. And the reports are that he's risen from the dead and they don't quite know how to get their heads around this. And without them really knowing it, Jesus somewhat incognito comes alongside of them and begins to have a conversation. And he ends that conversation with these words, which we will begin with today as our scripture. And I would invite you to, uh, to stand with me and read these words together. This is from Luke 24, 27, 30, 32. Let's read together. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure that, uh, that many of you indulged this last Thursday in that uh, great American feast called Thanksgiving. We love uh, feasts for the most part. Uh, we love them because they're, they're occasional. They're, they're huge. They bring people together. It's, it's a feast. We like feasts. Y'all like feasts? Well, this morning, I want to uh, talk with us and sort of give you a new sense of a different kind of feast. I'm calling it a continual feast. It's a continual feast that begins right here in our worship services. It's actually a double feast. It's called the Word and the Table. The Word and the Table. In the Word of God, the Scriptures, we encounter and experience God. In the Table of Communion, we encounter and experience Christ in a unique way. It's very interesting. In this passage that we just read, if you want to go back to that for just a second, um, the, the interesting thing about this passage is that you see both of these coming together. So Jesus is walking along with them and, and he begins to explain to them in all the scriptures the things that are about himself. And as we'll see, the whole Bible points to Jesus and he begins to explain to them and it says, didn't our hearts burn within us? They had burning hearts as they heard the scriptures from the mouth of Jesus. And it all began to, to pull together and to make sense. But then it says that they, they pulled alongside the road. And as anyone in that culture would, would do, they invited Jesus to come in and eat with them. And Luke uh, is not haphazard about how he writes this. Now, again, Luke. Think of Luke, the writer of the gospel. 
When's he writing this? Jesus dies at age 33, okay? Luke is probably written about 60 AD, 30 years after this. He's writing to the churches and the communities that he's writing to, he wants them to understand that just like after the resurrection, these groups of early disciples could have a personal encounter, a conversational relationship with the living Christ. He wanted them to understand that too. And so as they would read these words about these disciples having their hearts burning within them as they heard the scriptures, he would then, then, then they, uh, they have this encounter with him in the, at the table where they're eating together. And it's no, by no accident that Luke says that he took the bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Took, thanks, broke, gave. Those are the exact same words that Jesus used at the Last Supper before his death. And it was when he said those words, when he broke that bread, that they immediately, and we don't, it's a mystery here, how did, they didn't understand, they didn't understand who he really was until that happened. And in the breaking of the bread, they had that living encounter with the risen Christ. The feast of the word and the feast of the table. That's what we want to look at today. How do we have a continual feast? How can we engage and experience Christ, both in the scriptures and in the table? I want us to look at both of those. I'm going to especially focus on the scriptures. Now, let me, let me just say this very um, straightforwardly and honestly with you. Having been uh, engaged in studying this book called the Bible for about 50 plus years now, it's very obvious that Christ followers who gather together in churches all around the world talk constantly and rightly about the fact that the Bible, the scriptures, are central to our life and to our faith. Is that right? I mean, the Bible is very, very central, very important. I fear that in many situations it becomes mere talk. We talk about how vital and important the Bible is, that we need to get it into our lives, that it's the, it's the story of God that makes sense of our stories, it's, it's the place that we have our spiritual nourishment, it's the place where we see who God really is. And yet, as a teacher, as a pastor for these many, many years, it's becoming increasingly obvious that we are a, a culture that is absolutely biblically ignorant and that's not just in the outside world. That's within our church communities as well. We're struggling. And I, I get it. But here's what I'm often hearing. I'm hearing the sense that, you know, I try to read the Bible. I know I should be excited about this, this book. I know I should be excited about the Bible. I know I should be reading it and studying it and thinking about it and, and having it be a part of my life. But I'm not sure I get it. This is really complex, and there's a lot of controversy about how to interpret it and how to understand it, and is it really relevant for today, and, and on and on. And pretty soon, that begins to have a, a sort of a snowball effect. 
to the point where we absolutely neglect it. We don't even try because we're living in a soundbite society that says, you know, the way you eat is fast food. And we, we apply that to how we approach the Bible sometimes. Let me just get some fast food. Let me just, let me just read, read someone else's study of the Bible and get a little bit of inspiration for the day, but I don't think I can really get into it myself. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, and I, to be totally honest, this, this Bible that we talk about is a huge book. It's pretty complex. It's hard to understand. It can get really confusing at times. And so it's not, shouldn't be surprising that we sometimes feel like we need a GPS to get our, to get our way around the Bible, to, to navigate how to understand what this is all about. I'd like to give you the first elements of that today a little bit. How do we avoid losing perspective, losing the foundation, losing the very nourishment that, that for centuries from the time of the prophets and the Psalms and Moses and David and Jesus and the early church and Christians throughout the centuries have constantly said, this is your nourishment. This is your food. Come to the feast. It's a feast. Let me uh, whet your appetite a little bit more, okay? Uh, one of the places that we would go to to get a picture of what, uh, sort of how does, how does God uh, really want us to view his word, the scriptures? I would go to the Psalms. The Psalms are uh, an amazing uh, testimony, a picture of, of how much delight we should have as we get into the scriptures. So Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, says uh, that the person who is seeking God is, is the one who is blessed by God, the one who delights in God, is the one who delights in his word, his law, his Torah. The word Torah means teaching. It means the very instruction from God. And it says that the man who is flourishing is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, on his law, they meditate day and night. And the result is that they will be like a tree planted by a river that's constantly flourishing. Its leaf doesn't wither. Fruit continues to bear. And that's, that's the picture of someone who's delight. Someone who is saturated, continually feasting on the word of God is going to be fruitful and filled with joy. In Psalm, uh, in Psalm 19, we have this beautiful picture of the word of God, Psalms, uh, Psalm 19, speaks in terms of, uh, as one rabbi put it, that the word of God is not only the authoritative teaching of God, but it's sensuously luscious. <laughs> can't even say that. It's sensuously luscious. Here's what it says in Psalm 19. It says, more to be desired are they than gold. God's words. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, than the drippings from the honeycomb. Have you ever heard the stories of how rabbis, Jewish teachers, would teach their classes? One of the things that they would do, this is from about the 10th century on, at the beginning, the first day of class, they would actually take the, the tablet that would have the, the alphabet or whatever on it, and they would smear the, uh, that alphabet, smear that slate with honey. And they would have the children actually lick the honey off of the letters on the slate. 
And as they, as they did that, uh, they would give them a honey cake, and on that honey cake was inscribed a verse of scripture from Isaiah 50. The Lord gave me a skilled tongue of a disciple, a learner. And then they would uh, bring them a, a hard-boiled egg, and upon that egg, they also put a part of a scripture verse. It says, mortal, feed your stomach and fill your belly with this scroll. And I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey to me. That was what Ezekiel said, the prophet, when God told him to speak the words of God. He said, eat the scroll, ingest this word, and it's going to be as sweet as honey. Now, I don't know if we lose anything in context. You may not get excited about honey. Honey may not be the sweetest thing for you. So maybe it's, you know, sweeter than a knead donut, you know, is God's word or some, something like that. I'm not sure. But the whole idea behind this exercise was what? It was like, learning is what? Sweet. Learning God's teaching is sweet. I actually uh, teach, taught a class for 10 years on biblical thought at URI, and I would sometimes bring, bring students up, and I would have some, some honey, and I'd have them close their eyes and have three other students put honey in their mouths, you know, and, and try to, uh, you know, duplicate this experience a little bit. But to get the idea that honey is sweet. Let me, let me just uh, share a personal story for a minute. Uh, this is my history with the Bible in, uh, you know, in, in two minutes. One of the things that was, uh, that was very exciting for me as a teenager, uh, my church experience was very slim. I, evidently, I went to church as, um, as a young child. I have a picture of me singing a song with my brother playing the piano when I was six years old. And then my, there was the dormancy period, evidently, for, with my mom. My dad was a professed atheist, a uh, hardworking farmer, good guy, but, but had wanted nothing to do with anything spiritual or religious. My mother, evidently, from the time I was about six or eight to the time I was 13, uh, we didn't do anything related to, to church or religious education of any kind. And then um, someone gave me one of those little Gideon Bibles. You ever seen those? Small Gideon Bibles, New Testament and Psalms. I took that and I began to read it. And I'd have it in the fields with me, working with my dad out in the fields. And I'd just sort of you know, sneak opportunities to read it. And then came along, when I was a teenager, the first popular modern translation or paraphrase of the scriptures it's called the good news for modern man I devoured that I marked it up and I read it and I was falling in love with Jesus Christ through the scriptures is what was happening I then began to attend uh, someone invited me to a little country Methodist church in western Pennsylvania and enter a formative woman in my life named Betty Price Betty Price was our Sunday school teacher she had five boys Five energetic boys, and myself, my best friend, some other guys. Do you know what I remember about Betty Price? One thing and one primary thing. She loved the scriptures. She loved Jesus, from which she learned, the, you know, the scriptures taught her about Jesus. She loved Jesus, but she loved the Bible. And she communicated that to us in all kinds of ways. And that was contagious for us. Fast forward to Penn State University. I get involved very quickly in a campus ministry organization and spent most of that time in Penn State involved with a group called the Navigators. And they were pretty centered on learning the scriptures, studying it, memorizing it, and so on. And that became a very formative thing uh, in my life. 
I remember one weekend we did a retreat. All the people, all the students in this uh, campus group went away for a weekend and we spent the whole weekend in one chapter of the Bible. Happens to be the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. It's 178 verses. It's an acrostic poem. Each eight verses begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the original. But the whole thing, every verse of 178 verses tells you another nugget of how wonderful and formative and absolutely essential the Word of God is to our spiritual health. And I can just remember that all the way back, you know, this is decades ago. But that, that sense of hunger and, and desire to know the Scriptures. I then moved to, uh, to New England and helped to begin a, a campus ministry with that same organization here uh, in Rhode Island. It wasn't for another 10 years that I actually went to theological graduate school. And uh, as many of you know who are in school of any kind, school is not some repository where they dump the truck on you and you take everything in and then for the rest of your life you give that back out. No, school is simply uh, giving you more tools for, to help you be a what? A lifelong learner. You are going to be a lifelong learner in whatever uh, field that you are. So seminary for me uh, was not some kind of a head trip. And one of the things that helped me with that was that I was pastoring at the same time I was going to seminary, which helped. But the other thing was, I remember a particular professor named Dr. Gordon Fee, and I've shared this with a couple of you. Uh, he, he was on fire uh, in his love for Jesus Christ. But he said, I want you to avoid something. Don't let anybody tell you that either you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. Either you're going to be a cold scholar or you're going to be somebody really on fire for God. He says, I want to be a scholar on fire. And that was my inspiration to this day. Okay? Don't put those two, it's not about, oh, this bland theology versus this real life excitement. No, those go together. You need good theology and you need to be on fire for the God of the Bible that you learn from it. Okay, so let me set the table for you. I want to suggest five lifelong practices that will help us to, be, to really engage and experience God through the Word of God. Okay, these are five practices. And, uh, and I suggest to you that they are going to be lifelong practices. And you can start them wherever you are. Some of you are doing these already in various ways. Uh, and, and some of you, it's like this is, this is a brand new thought, but I want to really encourage you to, to look at all five of these as something that can be a framework, almost like a, a, a way in which you ingest the scriptures, the word of God, that continual feast of getting to know God in his word, in God's word. Okay, so here we go. You ready? This is going to be fast. Okay, the first one is to hear the word. How, we, we hear the word. So where we're going to go with this, we're going to hear the scriptures you know, with, with uh, intentionality and with attention. We're going to read the scriptures uh, in, a, in a more systematic way. We're going to study the scriptures strategically. We're going to memorize uh, the scriptures selectively, and we're going to meditate and apply the scriptures prayerfully. That's where we're going, those five. So the first one, we need to hear the scriptures Attentively. Jesus, and Jesus is our model in all of these. 
So Jesus, when he begins his public ministry, he's 30 years old, he goes into this public sphere of teaching. And one of the first things he does, he goes into his hometown of Nazareth, into the synagogue. Anyone ever been to a synagogue worship? So synagogue worship was the way in which, uh, you know, people didn't go, always go to the temple, but the synagogue formed as a way of instruction and teaching as well as community. And so one of the things you do when you walk into a synagogue is part of the service is that any, any male, any adult male, in that case male, could actually read and comment on the scripture of the day. And there was an appointed scripture for the day. They had like a, what's called a lectionary. And the particular day Jesus walks in, he picks up the Isaiah scroll, happens to be Isaiah 61, which says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the captive, etc. And he goes on through this and he stops and he puts the scroll down and he says, these words are fulfilled today in your hearing. Because this is about me. <laughs> and their natural reaction was, who are you? Really? But that teaching, that, that authoritative preaching, Jesus was a teacher of the word. And that was a big part of Jesus' ministry, was teaching. Okay? So let me just say this. As we think about hearing, how do we hear the word today? Well, the hearing part is what we're doing right now. You're hearing someone who has read, prepared, thought, studied, prayed over a text of Scripture and is sharing that with you. And you are hearing someone else's study of the Word, okay? So you're hearing the Scriptures. This is called a sermon, all right? Let me ask you a question. When you think about a worship service, and you've probably been to all different kinds of worship services, but when you think about the sermon part of a worship service, do you think of it as worship? Do you worship when you listen to a sermon? So we have a risk, we have a danger today, and some of the modern churches today, sometimes the complaint is, it's like going to a concert and a lecture. And sometimes we don't have a sense that, no, it's all worship. One of my pet peeves is that sometimes people speak of worship only as the music part of the service. And I love music, and I love worshiping through music. But we need to worship in all parts of the service. How do you worship in a sermon? Can you worship as you're listening to a sermon? Someone asked me, I, I retired from 20 years of Christ Church. So for 20 years, on most weeks, I'm preaching three times every week in the morning, and as well as, you know, funerals and weddings and other contexts of teaching, right? So now I retire from that, working as a chaplain, and so I'm not preaching nearly as much. And so someone say, is that hard? Is that an adjustment for you? Uh, is, is it hard not to be preaching every week? And I said, well, the hardest thing about not preaching every week is not preaching every week. Because I find, I found that I worship in my preaching. Think about the advantage that, that I have having soaked in what I'm talking about over a period of days or weeks. And so I come prepared to go. And all of a sudden, here I am coming into a service. I'm not preaching. All of a sudden, I realize what you guys have to go through. I got to put away those distractions. I got to tune in and be attentive to what's being said. I've got to actually learn. I've got to actually have a sense of how do you want to speak to me, God? How, you, how do you want to speak to me today, even through my children who are preaching? Can you learn from your children? Absolutely. Because it's not about your children, it's about 
trusting that God's word is being spoken through the person appointed to preach. So let me just say this about preaching and, and sermons and hearing the word. We live in a world where information is just everywhere, okay? So you can hear sermons on podcasts, you can read books, you can, you can uh, read all kinds of things that give you input from other people who are teaching the word. That's, that's good, but there is no substitute for being a part of a community where you are listening to authoritative teaching being taught to you in your own context from people who know you, who know what's going on in your area, who are part of leading your church community into the mission of God in the world where you live. So there's all kinds of other ways that we hear the word, but don't neglect being in a community where you are hearing it week after week from the people who are closest to you, who are shepherding you, who are pastoring you. Does that make sense? So, you know, do both, but don't neglect Okay, so, number two. The second one is reading. And I, and I put this uh, in, in terms of reading the scriptures systematically. Reading the whole story is how we start to connect the dots about the big picture of God and of life. Some, a famous philosopher said this. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part. My subtitle for the Bible is that it is the story we find ourselves in. That's not good grammar, but it's, it's the, the point is this. The Bible is the story where I find myself. And think of that in two ways. The, story, the Bible is the story I find myself in that when I read the Bible, I see myself. I find myself there. I see the good, the bad, and the ugly of humanity. I see the hard questions, the doubts, the, the failures, the, the, the rise and the fall, the transformation. I see it all in the scriptures. The Bible doesn't candy coat its characters. If you've read the Bible, you know this. David's a man after God's own heart, writes the Psalms, and then, you know, second, you're reading 2 Samuel, and he's being negligent. He's up on a rooftop. He looks over. He sees a woman, falls into adultery, misuses his power, ends up having an adulterous relationship that destroys several people's lives. And then we hear the story of how David needed to be confronted by the prophet, and then he repented, and he had sorrow. He had loss. But he was brought back, and we read Psalm 51 is his prayer to God for being renewed. It's all there. It's a beautiful way in which we see the way life really is. The Bible, sometimes people struggle with why is this in the Bible? Remember, the Bible is descriptive. It's not always prescriptive. So the fact that it describes a terrible thing that took place doesn't mean that God is proscribing it or at, you know, validating it. But the point is, yes, there's confusion. Yes, there's difficulties. But boy, this is the story that makes sense of life. And that's the other nuance. It's the story I see myself in. It's also the story I find myself in, in the sense of this makes sense of life. And here, I will find my purpose. Here, I will see my Savior. Here, I will understand what God is like, because without God, I cannot make sense of life. So, reading. Reading is, uh, it's like having the map. 
It's like, have you ever tried to drive in a big city for the first time? It's like, I, I cringe the idea of driving in Boston, okay? Because Boston isn't laid out like Chicago with blocks. If you're going to drive in Boston, you need to have a layout. You need to know the landmarks. And that's what reading widely in the Bible does. It gives us the layout. It gives us the landmarks. So what I find myself doing sometimes, there's all kinds of ways that, that we can tie in. I've been using uh, you know, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer daily office, it's called. Uh, but it goes through you know, the, the Bible sort of in a year, the Psalms every month. So what I'll often do is when I work out at the gym, I'll have 15, 20 minutes you know, on a treadmill or a machine or something. I'll just put on the scriptures. And I can listen to whole sections, whole books at a time. And I find it is just so wonderful uh, to be able to, again, get that big picture. By the way, if you haven't picked it up, after 50 years of studying the scriptures, I am like a, a, a child in a candy shop, and it is a continual feast. I haven't even scratched the surface. And, and there's just no end to the delight uh, that we see as we get into the scriptures. So, so hearing... The scriptures with, with attention, reading the scriptures systematically. Thirdly, study the scriptures, you need to study the scriptures strategically. Uh, we struggle, as you know, uh, that we're in an age of, of sound bites and it's hard to give our attention uh, for long periods of time. And as important as it is to be inspired by Scripture and hearing what others have to say, there's no substitute for digging deep into mining the gold yourself. To digging in a little bit deeper, in a strategic way, seeing the Scriptures in terms of its themes, in terms of, of the ways in which it guides our life, to take that time to, to actually study and to go deep. Now, one of the things that um, you know, Martin Luther the, the great reformer, had as a primary focus, this is one of his tenets, that he lived at a time when, uh, when people came to worship, the worship service was in Latin, the scriptures were in Latin, and many people did not read or read Latin. The Bible wasn't translated into their own language yet. People lost their lives, like Wycliffe and Huss, translating the scriptures into their own language. Why were the leaders of the church so worried about that? Because they didn't feel that the average person could accurately interpret it. I mean, at least that was the reason given. And Luther says, absolutely not. Every single follower of Christ needs to be able and to be encouraged to read and to study the scriptures for themselves. But he added this. The fact that everyone can study the Bible doesn't mean that you should read the Bible and, and sort of give it any interpretation that you want. In other words, we're called upon to do some work, to understand some interpretive principles, etc. And of course, the chief, the most important principle of reading and studying the scriptures is to see Jesus in it. Because like he said to the disciples there in Luke 24, it all points to him. It all points to Jesus. So see every place you read through the lens of Jesus. So the fact that we are encouraged to read it and study it doesn't mean that we're to be sloppy about how we read and study it. Jesus, uh, this was not a new problem. Sloppy interpretation. Have you, have you seen any sloppy interpretation? We struggle. We're, we're struggling big time. 
Sometimes the reason people dismiss the Bible or faith in general is that they have seen the Bible used to support all kinds of terrible things. From injustices to, to mind-numbing you know, legalism and, and laws that, that just bind people up and there's the farthest thing possible from the freedom and the joy that, that Jesus talked about when he said, I've come to give you abundant life. This isn't a new problem. Jesus dealt with it with the religious leaders. And when you read the Gospels, sometimes we, we read and we sort of jump over things, uh, not realizing how, how uh, <laughs> cynical Jesus is being at times. Okay? You don't like to think of Jesus as cynical, but think of what he did to the religious leaders. Time and again, probably dozens of times in the Gospels, Jesus will be talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, who by the second year of his ministry were in direct opposition trying to, to do him in. And so they, they saw Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath day, and they had put laws on top of God's law, man-made laws, that said, no, you can't do certain things on the Sabbath. And so healing sounded like work, and so they said, no, you can't do that. Why are you breaking our laws? Or, or, or you know, he would be eating grain with the disciples out in the fields on the Sabbath day, and they said, you can't do that. And so Jesus, again and again and again, said these words to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? They were the experts in what? The law, the scriptures, okay? They knew it backwards and forwards. And so here's what Jesus would say again and again. Excuse me, um, have you never read? Have you never read? <laughs> what an insult that is like in your face. Have you never read? Or the other, the other thing you would say is, uh, could, you, could you learn what this saying means? That I, the God, when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? When they are criticizing him for eating with tax collectors and sinners, people who were seeking after God, but they were the other, they were the marginalized. And they wanted Jesus, like, crucified because he was eating with the wrong kind of people. And Jesus says, have you never read? Do you not know the heart of God? If you did, you'd be eating with them too. You'd be expressing the love and mercy and grace of God. You've, you've turned this into, into a bondage. And this is to be the freedom of the heart of God being expressed to people in great need who are broken and lost. Fourthly, so, so the third thing there is, is to study, to do the work. It doesn't mean, you know, and, and one of the things we're going to try to do, uh, hopefully it can be a part of this um, over, the, over the time, over time here in Sanctuary, is to provide some, some classes or some vehicles or some ways to give a little bit of a framework uh, in order to understand the big picture of the Bible so that when you do read it, it helps to make sense and connect the dots. You know, all of, I have no problems with the fact that people don't bring their, their physical Bibles to church. You know, we bring our devices, it's on, you know. But even that, I feel like we, we have a lot of work we could do to help us know how best to utilize technology for biblical studies. There's, there's just unending amounts of it, but how do we best use that? Okay, I digress. Fourthly, 
to memorize. There's a, a, a skill, a tool that, that I believe is part of digesting and, and joining this feast of the word of God. It's to memorize selective portions. Again, Jesus is our great example, right? So Jesus, after he is baptized by John the Baptist, he starts his, before he starts his public ministry, where does God send him? Into the wilderness, and he's, he's out in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, fasting, and he's being tested and tempted by Satan, by the devil, the enemy of his soul. And so Satan, being very tricky, says, so if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones you must be hungry. You must, why don't you turn these stones into bread? He gives them three temptations like that. Each time Jesus responds. You know how he responds? Get behind me, Satan, because it is written. It is written. And so he says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Bible is your necessary spiritual food. Eat it. That's what you need. Even more than your bread. So he puts Satan in his place. At one point he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they who speak of me. Jesus quoted the Psalms. He quoted Isaiah. He quoted Deuteronomy again and again. I have to remind myself and, and all of us, don't think of Jesus. You know, don't, don't, don't uh, hear this and say, well, yeah, but he was Jesus. I mean, he knew all that, right? Jesus did not have a SIM card implanted in his brain by God the Father that automatically downloaded all of Scripture. He had to learn it, and he did. And so when Jesus is on the cross, Three of the sayings on the cross are quotations from the scriptures of, his, of the Old Testament. And the most notable is Psalm 22, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not a picture of God turning his face away and, and rejecting his son. That is Jesus quoting the honest agony and groaning of the psalmist. The first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm convinced that Jesus knew the whole psalm, uttered the, the words of the first verse, and meditated on the whole rest of it. Because you know what happens in, in the, the end of that psalm? The end of that psalm ends like something like this. All the nations of the earth will come and feast at his table. <laughs> it's like the victory is coming in the end. And he knew that. Lastly, so, again, memorizing is, um, is something we can do selectively. I still do it. I still put verses that speak to me. And sometimes what I do is I may read widely, but I ask God, okay, what's, what's the verse? What's the one place that you're speaking to me about? And then taking that verse and just memorizing it, ruminating on that for, for like the week. So don't, don't get into the habit of saying, well, gee, I've read through the Bible this year and I've checked off every box of every chapter, but do I remember anything? Am I allowing God to assimilate it into my life? And that, that's what number five is about. Number five is to meditate on the scriptures prayerfully. Think about this. Think of it almost like a table setting. Okay, drinking 
Drinking is almost like hearing the word. Someone else is pre-digesting it and you are drinking it. The spoon is taking larger quantities and that's like reading the word. The knife would be like, you know, cutting, cutting it up, dissecting it. That's like studying the word. The fork is like taking, you know, a piece of it and being able to get a good grasp on it and memorize it. So where does meditation come in? Where does application and contemplation, meditating on the scriptures, where does that come in? That's digestion. Because however you get the scriptures into your mind and heart, if you don't meditate on it, if you don't obey it and apply it, it doesn't get assimilated into your spiritual bloodstream. I can't say that word without telling you about the cow. I won't go into the digestive details. But the church fathers talked about rumination as a metaphor for digesting God's word. If you walked into a, uh, a barn, which I've done many times in my life, you're raised on a dairy farm, you walk in at three in the morning because of you know, cows having a calf or something, every cow is down on their haunches chewing. What are they chewing? You don't want to know. It's, it's all that they've ingested all through the day, and now they are digesting it, and it's called the cud, chewing the cud, okay? What are they doing? They're getting everything out of that cellulose and making it into, you know, nourishment for themselves. And that's how a black cow eats green grass and produces white milk, okay? <laughs> the, point, the point is, if a cow stops chewing their cud, if a cow stops ruminating, chewing, 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 that cow will be sick and may die. You can't take in the scriptures and not have it assimilated. It will do, do no good if we're not digesting and applying. Okay? So, those are just five tools. And I, I want to I encourage you. Think of those five practices as something that, A, you can start in any form right now. It's something that you need to develop and think about and how to use, use the tools available to get the Word of God into your life. That as you do that, the Word of God will become sweeter and sweeter. You will find yourself having God's perspective in the midst of those dark times, those times when you're discouraged or becoming cynical or jaded, and you realize that I'm not sure I can make sense of life. You're building a foundation of God's perspective in life that will serve you for your entire days. So, so think of those five ways. And this, we'll certainly come back to this at, at another time uh, in more detail. As we move to the table, this is the second part of the feast. And it deserves its own series, its own uh, sermon and teaching to, to continually understand more and more about uh, this Eucharist. But here, uh, here's, here's what the words say that we read often as we come to the communion table. Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance 
of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now I want to point out two words in this passage. Two words. If we ask the question, why do we come to the Lord's table? Why do we have the table as well as the word in every service on Sundays? Here's the two words. When, when the Apostle Paul says Jesus gave thanks, he gave thanks, the Greek word there is the same word from which we get Eucharist, Eucharistia, okay? And what does that mean? It means thanks. So we sometimes call this table the Lord's Supper or the communion table or the Eucharist. The Eucharist comes from that word in the words of institution that say he gave thanks, thanks. The Eucharist is the great thanksgiving. We constantly need to be giving thanks because of what he has done for us. We come to the table recognizing that it is not we ourselves that become related in relationship intimately with God. It's because of what Christ has done for us. And we give thanks continually for that. But the other part, the other word here goes along with it. And that's the word uh, that's translated remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Look at this word. The word is anamnesis. Okay? If I said the word amnesis, is there any other word that that sounds like? Amnesia. Amnesia. If you have amnesia, what are you struggling with? Memory or you're struggling about, you're, you're struggling because you're forgetting. You've forgotten something. So put an on the front of it, it means against forgetting. Against forgetting. Every time we come to the table, we are pushing back against our constant tendency to forget. That was the, the continuous malady of the Israelites, that they forgot what God had done, that they didn't remember who he was or what he had done. And so every time we come to the table, we are pushing back against forgetting. And then we are coming to meet him in this special way that he has established. In the worship service, the word and the table Eucharist go together, and that's what Luke had in mind, I think, in our opening scripture. I was reminded um, of a song by uh, Michael Card, an old, old song, and I want to end with that as we come to the table. The chorus of this song goes like this. Come to the table. He's prepared for you. The bread of forgiveness the wine of release. Come to the table and sit down beside him. The Savior wants you to join in the feast. Let's pray. Lord, in the ancient prayers of your people, pastors, the priests, take the gifts of bread and wine and say, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him.
in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for the continual and perpetual feasts that form us, that remind us, that feed us, that give us life. May we not neglect, but rather build delight in your word and in your table. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to, uh, to come forward as you are ready. If you are in love with Jesus Christ, and if you've come to that place of putting your trust in him as the one who has saved you, uh, that's all that we would call you to, to come with that sense of not your own worthiness, but the, the worthiness of Christ. But I would also say that if there may be some of you who, who have been like my own experience where I'm gradually learning about this Jesus, and I'm still trying to do it on my own. And then one day you get to that place where you realize this is not about what I can do. This is about what Jesus has done. And I'm going to receive that. I'm going to take that in. So if this is a time where you feel like you are ready to place your trust in the one who saves you, the one who loves you, the one who wants to have that intimate personal conversational relationship with you then what better way a better time to say I receive you I receive you as you come forward uh, you can take a piece of the bread dip it in the cup and then eat with thanksgiving and then return by the side aisles to your seat there's also uh, a couple here who are able to pray with you briefly over any uh, need that you might have your you're struggling with, that you need guidance on, that you just need prayer, um, feel free to come forward either before or after uh, taking communion and, and praying together or afterwards with others as well. So come, come to the feast. 